All right, we're live. Very cool. So right, there you go. What's up, Dylan? It's been a while. Hey, how you doing, Rochiel? It has been more than a while. <laughs> yeah, uh, we've both been moderately busy. Um, it's just that whenever we are both free, uh, whenever one person's free, the other person has something going on. Isn't so, it? yeah. yeah, it's been hard to coordinate. Um, anyway, but, you know, we're back. I, I told Rochiel I'd do this, but I, I just got to say a disclaimer about my microphone. Like, I never heard myself in a recording before I li- re-listened to the podcast that we did the first time, and then I realized, wow, my microphone sounds like garbage. It's not because <laughs> I have a cheap microphone. I looked at it, and what's happening is there's a lot of, like, feedback, like a lot of actual static, and I think that might be due to the fact that uh, it's like a three-pin thing or whatever, how whatever the terminology is, where there's, like, most computers with a dedicated microphone and headphone cable, like can't can't register at the same time so i need to use a splitter that connects the two so i tried that and i tried like all these different things but pretty much it's a problem with interference with my motherboard next time i might try with my laptop we'll see but for now you're gonna have to deal with it yeah yeah it's tough i mean uh shit bro like yeah that's, that's all i have to say about <laughs> yeah the mic anyway yeah i know I mean, it sounds it awful it i'm sorry so I guess, like, first things on the agenda, like, I'd like to uh, acknowledge the support we received. Um, and a lot of people said nice things. Uh, a couple people posted it, you know, uh, re- you know, shouted out the podcast on, you know, their stories and whatnot. And, like, you know, that's probably going to be the most attention the podcast ever receives. But, like, it still felt really nice. Um, I mean, so, yeah. it's just it's just cool that there's people who actually listen even if yeah. it's like a handful uh-huh. if you if you have any enjoyment out of it whatsoever right, right. then we'll keep on doing them and i mean this episode's probably gonna get less views than the first one like i checked the uh, anchor statistics and we had like 50 plays or something this one's probably gonna get like 25 but you know we'll see yeah yeah um, unless you like like made it with some crazy right right like uh dylan harshiel podcast gone wrong gone Not sexual wrong. in the hood <laughs> in the hood yeah yeah that's... 2016 <laughs> yeah yeah man i miss youtube pranks those were great it's the golden days now YouTube. it's like now youtube is just i don't even know how to describe yeah. it. it's like among us videos with like weird it's... mods and like it's classic YouTube bts when it was... stuff i i mean i don't know yes yeah it's when it was when the algorithm first started to control everything, but before it really solidified itself, so it was like mm-hmm. prank videos and those things. Right, and Dude, also you can't forget about old <laughs> Right, you can't forget about rappers that like no one listens to, but somehow have one of their music videos end up on trending anyway. That just happens. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Dude, the YouTube algorithm is really, really predatory with how they push out stuff. Have you ever heard of like Elsa Gate? No, I haven't. Uh, okay, well, have you ever, like, accidentally made a typo looking for any YouTube search category? Not so much anymore, but a couple of years ago, and then there'd be the weirdest, like, animated kids videos? Mm. No, some, I, I uh... have no context for this. Okay, well, if you look up, like, Elsa Gate, it's like Pizzagate, like, all these conspiracy theories, but Elsa, as in the character from Frozen, mm-hmm. there's some massive conspiracies that they're uh, just pushing inappropriate content out for children, things like scat fetishes and needles and whatnot just really really weird stuff man like youtube cracked down on it hard but mm-hmm. yeah that's it was, not... it was an entire <laughs> okay yeah Here, let me let me i mean i know that i think joe rogan and h3h3 mm-hmm. they both talk about things like that on their podcast mm-hmm. 
Right, it's a good podcast Yeah, there's a Wikipedia material. page for it. Right, it's very bizarre. Um, if you can't tell that from my voice, by the way, I'm, I'm moderately sick right now. Um, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah. All right. So, uh, what do you have to to talk about today? I, I have no idea what Dylan's going to talk about. So. Yeah, we we I'm didn't. Excited. We just told each other that we have ideas, but yeah. uh, we didn't actually clarify them before now. So th- these are genuine reactions we're having to them. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first thing that I was just thinking about, it's like one good thing is the idea of. I mean, it's relevant because who is it? Jeff Bezos, right? Didn't he just do some space flight like yeah. last week or the week before? Yeah, a couple of weeks. I was yeah. just thinking about that and the whole idea of not necessarily the corporate aspect, but the idea of space travel or the colonization of other planets mm-hmm. and um i don't know i'm under the opinion that i really couldn't care less about things like that and i think that people overvalue those things a lot i'll, I'll go more about that later but i just what, what, what do you think about that like do you have any commentary about the actual event all right so in i'll give you a hypothetical right so like let's say yep. in uh 10 years or let's say no no let's say today uh, we detect a uh, asteroid, um, let's say about the size of the one that killed the dinosaurs, uh, on a course collision with Earth, um, and we have ten years until it hits us. Like mm-hmm. in this context, isn't it important that we have developed enough space infrastructure to, uh, I don't know, inter- intercept the asteroid or maybe get people off the planet as fast as possible, or you know. Or whatever needs right. to be done, or move the planet out of the way. I've I've seen like proposals where like a giant swarm of, of robot satellites sort of shifts Earth's gravity in a way that it like moves out of its orbit. Um, I don't know how accessible the technology of like shifting Earth out of its actual orbit is, but I was the lines of sending people off to another planet to re mm-hmm. to recontinue human existence, right? Uh-huh. And so the. This kind of goes along to what you're saying, and I think it might explain what my view would be on things like that. Mm-hmm. So let me just uh, ramble for a couple of minutes. Yeah, you're good. So pretty much, there's a lot of the main ideas of you know colonizing another planet is the idea that Earth is going to become inhospitable after a while, right? Right. So if you look at population trends, it's exponential, obviously, right? As the population increases, the um, rate that people have. What do you mean? I mean, like... if you look at, like human birth trends since. Uh-huh. They've been like decreasing, right? Well, but there's more people. Here, let me let me look up some graphs. Anyway, the point is, the po- the global population is increasing, right? Maybe mm-hmm. not in first world countries, but in a lot of places, it, it's been increasing. Yeah, and just the amount of people, not necessarily the amount of people per mother, but mm-hmm. the amount of people in general. Mm-hmm. And the Earth can only support so many, right? I right. forget what the number is. is I like um... twenty. Either it's between twenty billion and fifty mm-hmm. billion, but it's it's a number, right? And we're gonna reach it eventually. I read a uh, statistic so, once that you know if the entire world had the same consumption patterns as the U.S. in the first world, we would need five Earths world worths of like five Earths worth of resources to support that population and sustain those same consumption patterns. Exactly, and mm-hmm. going on to what you just said, there's gonna be a time. I don't know how soon it's going to be. It could be in the next 100 years, next 200 years, where there'll be no more resources to go around, right? Mm-hmm. And the Earth is kind of going to be hell for everyone to live in. Mm-hmm. And then that's the idea that they'll send people off to another planet to colonize it. But the thing is, the people who they send up are the elite. That Essentially, what they're doing is preserving mm-hmm. the elite class. Mm-hmm. Everyone who's not elite will just be left here on Earth to suffer forever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. why should an African family care that some billionaire is going to 
go to another planet and his kids get to live on. Like, I, I know that's not going to be me, so I couldn't care less about it. Right, so I... The only way that... Yeah, go, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, the only way that it would be fine is if somehow space travel became cheap enough where you could bring everyone, which is not only impractical, it's... Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure it's, like, literally impossible. All right. by how expensive it is to send things up. But anyway, you were saying something. So, so yeah, I, I actually, like, could not agree more with you, but I want to play devil's advocate. Um, So, like, the, the argument often uh, proposed by capitalists and, and whatnot um, is that the technology of today, or the bleeding-edge technology of today is the accessible uh, everyday technology of tomorrow, right? So if you think of the internet in, like, what, 1960... Um, it was just a bunch of wires that connected like four college campuses um, in the Western United States. And now it's this universal feature, like universal um, utility that pretty much everyone on Earth has access to. Like if you're not like an uncontacted tribe in the Amazon or something, you have uh, access to the Internet in some in some form or another. You know what I mean? Yeah. OK. OK. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's and, and the reason that transformation happened is because of um, private corporations who saw a profit that could have been made and um, invested the uh, necessary capital capital in expanding, um, you know, the utility of the internet um, to sort of turn a profit. And that expansion first began with wealthy individuals who could afford the um, sort of insane amount of infrastructure required to sustain you know, an internet connection in the, in the, you know, 1970s and 60s, let's say 70s, um, then that expanded into, you know, personal computers, which were available to upper middle class families in the 80s, and then in the 90s, everyone had a computer, and then, you know, smartphones, and yada, 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 yada. The idea is that the, um, profiteer, the, the profit-driven um, activities of the wealthy, uh, provide the necessary create sort of the necessary market conditions for the further expansion of any given technology um i don't yeah, know if that, that makes sense. sense no that so makes like, a lot of sense but the thing is i want to emphasize that i agree with dylan here i'm just i'm just playing devil's advocate yeah, it's devil's yeah. Advocate. i'd say to that devil's advocate i know that you you literally say that you agree with me but i would say to that devil's advocate that i mean having an internet connection is one thing but it's just the idea that you have to have a certain amount of money to ensure mm -hmm. that you get to live is pretty terrifying. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's say Jeff Bezos uh, and his space, you know, uh, company start once again still playing devil's advocate. Uh, start offering other billionaires tickets to space. Uh, they start making a lot of money, and they're like, "Hey, let's let's build a couple more rockets." And you know, because of economies of scale, once you expand the production of any given good or service, uh, generally costs and production costs. Um, for the supplier decrease, right? Which means the technology becomes more accessible, uh, which means um, more people get to purchase it, which you know creates more profit for the company. Production costs continue to go down, and it's sort of a cycle uh, uh, up to, up until the point where you know buying a space ticket is like buying a plane ticket. You know what I mean? Mm. And the vast majority of people can afford that. So that is, I suppose. Mm. I mean, ah. Eh. But that's like really, really looking long term. Another interesting thing about uh, this is less the economic implications, but rather political ones. I mean, at that point, if we're colonizing completely new spot, you know, the concept that originally got brought up during the Cambodian genocide is 
the mm. whole idea of year zero starting over from the very very beginning with yeah, society yeah, yeah that's essentially what happened right and that would mm -hmm. transcend political boundaries and i'm not sure how that would happen and it, like i don't know what the political climate's going to look like hundreds of years from now but that's really weird to think about too what i think is likely is when you know colonization happened in, in americas and in africa and in asia like the people responsible for that were these mercantilist um corporations uh that had you know ties to uh like, like the you know east india uh tea company or what am i saying the east india company um yep basically just a corporation with state-sponsored uh cash flow i guess and what's interesting is that we're seeing that same pattern um, emerge uh, for space exploration companies. Like SpaceX got like a billion dollar, maybe not a billion dollars, but they got a huge loan from multi-million at least from uh, the U.S. government to fund space exploration. So we're sort of mm -hmm. seeing mercantilism uh, reemerged in the um, reemerge in, in the space exploration field, which I think is pretty interesting. That's a, right? that's a parallel I've never thought of before. But so yeah, I'm gonna have to disagree with you. I I think. You said like it's kind of unpredictable what you know the political climate will look you know in a in in a hypothetical year zero. I mean, I think it's kind of obvious we're we're gonna you know repeat history and, and repeat the area of, of colonialism. Um, you know, of course, there's no alien life on other planets, which is good. Yeah, because that implies for sure. you know, so there won't be the same amount of genocide. But you know, exploitation of natural resources, I, that's probably like guaranteed i mean asteroids have a ton of you know mineral wealth and, Iron, and frozen right. water actually which might become even more valuable in the future because we're running out of water here on earth you know what i mean also the idea of terraforming terraforming yeah. other planets one mm -hmm. way that they think you could make them you know hospitable mm -hmm. i know from a science point of view it's pretty cool but from a you know from a from a human point of view it's it's just kind of sad if you think about it for too long right and like here's my like response to my own devil's advocate argument I made earlier. Like it is true that if a corporation um, finds a certain good or service profitable, they generally will expand that good or service to, um, you know, more and more people. Um, but what that good, what, what ends up happening is that corporation establishes an effective monopoly on that good or service. So like AT&T, like how many like, you know, network providers are there in the United States? So there's like AT&T, Verizon, and then like what T-Mobile? I think Sprint merged with one of them. So I mean, yeah, and and that like creates this extraordinary power imbalance between between consumer and and corporation that is oftentimes destructive. If you know what I mean. No, I, I do know what you mean. Yeah. And so like translate that to like space exploration. Um, I I see like indentured servitude coming back, right? Where like. You know, you want to go to Mars. Get maybe maybe you have like a bunch of debt here. Uh, maybe you're a criminal, and uh, you get this um, offer from Elon Musk. He calls you, and he's like, "Hey, you have no life here on Earth. You're screwed here. Come with me. Come to Mars. Work for a couple years to build my Mars colony, and then I'll let you start a new life on Mars." Like, I feel like um, this is something that is eventually going to happen. That's interesting to think about. I know what you're saying. That's indentured servitude to a space corporation but another thing is uh kind of back to the very first thing i was saying is if we reach the point where just a common criminal is allowed to go to mars that's probably i mean 
if we're at that point in technology, I'm mm -hmm. sure that Earth is already going to be an awful place to live for 99.999% of the human population for decades and decades I mean, before we reach the point. That's why Georgia and Australia exist, right? Because they were penal colonies. Um, I suppose. Right, like, you know, Britain had all of these criminals and debtors. They didn't know what to do with them. Well, there wasn't enough room for them that's in their own prisons. Yeah, or, I think I think penal colonies are coming back. Like, I don't see any meaningful changes happening to the carceral system in the United States. Um, and I, I mean, think, but, but like, I think, I mean, like I was we're gonna saying, have supermax though, prisons I, on Mars. I mean, I, I think it's likely. But isn't the I, I, I don't know about that because the thing is, isn't the reason why we'd colonize Mars in the first place is because Earth would become inhospitable? Why would we be sending the criminals? Um, off to the place that's supposed to, I don't know, be the future of all these rich people's kids. Well, because the rich people aren't going to work when they get there. They need they need laborers. They they can't work themselves. Like what are you talking about? They need okay, people. To, okay, okay. They need okay. people to build their houses and their you know, uh, terrariums where they grow all their crops, right? Okay, I see. I see what you're saying. That's yeah. Okay, okay. Now I get it. Mm -hmm. Like obviously, I think there's going to be a bit of a delay between when um you know, Martian terraforming is possible and when Earth becomes inhospitable. There's going to be, like, a good couple of decades um, yeah. between those, you know, uh, those two landmarks, I guess. And so what you need to do is, within that time frame, is you need to build the infrastructure to sustain um, the new Year Zero population on Mars. And so, like, who do you who do you go to? You don't go to workers who, you know, have to pay, like, a wage and you have to, like, give them you know, rights and all the stuff that gets in the way of, of uh, good work. And then, uh, I don't know, I'm speaking from the perspective of a billionaire, obviously, but uh, if you, you want to turn a profit, I mean, you got to turn to criminals and have them do all your work for you. Do you think you'd promise their, their freedom afterwards? Uh, they might get it. I don't know. Like after, Because like, the thing about indentured servants is that they would go there to work for like two years and they'd end up working for like 30. But then they would eventually get their freedom in some form. So. Okay, I see. I yeah, see. yeah. Uh, that's really interesting mm -hmm. i can i can hear feedback i'm not sure if i mean they can hear it from the actual listener's point of view we'll, but we'll have to i'll take a look once we finish recording if it okay. if, you, if we are able to hear feedback then i mean it is what it is and you know yeah it is what it is yeah you're right. gonna have to deal with that i don't think we're gonna i partial and i were talking about it earlier mm -hmm. i don't think you're gonna spend as much time editing this one as the last one yeah editing is a pain in the ass i mean i spent like three hours just going through and scrubbing out audio imperfections and even still there were some audio imperfections and uh a lot of you know empty spaces um yeah some, was, like, yeah. some clarification to make is harshield does pretty much all of the work on this podcast he does all of the hard work he's the one I... who everything spotify and edits everything yeah that's kind of true but like it's also not very difficult to do those things i mean aside from the editing i mean recording's not difficult and you know uploading a okay. file to anchor is also not very difficult so i mean it's that's not true. like i'm doing it's not like i'm doing the lion's share of work here i mean that's true yeah so uh kind of related to what i was talking about sometimes i'll have this conversation with with my friends i'm not going to mention their names like i did last time that mm -hmm. part had to be cut out yeah um some of them are like really really interested in this idea of space exploration and space colonization i think mm -hmm. from a science point of view they kind of tied in their personality to that sense you know what i mean like i i think they overvalue it a lot but a thing that is always brought up is the idea to combat overpopulation doing a one-child policy and i also think that's a pretty yeah that worked well i mean that worked out great for china right their economy is on the verge the of collapse is, like yeah but the thing that i always bring up is that um, when it reaches the point where Earth becomes hospitable, overpopulation at that point is a global issue, right? 
mm -hmm. a global issue. Mm -hmm. But it can only be regionally enforced because not all governments are, you know, have that power over their people to stop, you know, people from having kids. Like if you look at the average number of children per woman in Niger, it's almost seven. Yeah. I, I don't know much about the government of Niger, but I mm -hmm. doubt that they'd be able to enforce a one-child policy effectively there, right? The places yeah. where they would be able to do it. This is a really, really controversial take, by the way. Some mm -hmm. people might not think that this is a problem. Mm -hmm. Personally, I don't really care. Yeah, There's definitely ahead. some people out there who'd think that this is super terrifying, right? Yeah. But you'd have to think about the demographic shifts. And I mean, like, the ethnic demographic shifts, right? Because what mm -hmm. places would be able to successfully enforce it, right? Europe, China, they've mm -hmm. done it. Mm -hmm. Probably places like Singapore and Hong Kong and Japan, South Korea, most likely. We can Probably pull it North off Korea here, too. honestly. Yeah, we, yeah, North. Uh, no, I don't know about the United States. Canada probably would be able to. Australia, New Zealand, pretty much white mm. people countries and East Asia, right? Yeah. So I, I mean, like I said, some people might not think this is a problem, but if those are the only places that are able to enforce it, then I mean, you'd have to worry about demographic shifts. As in, like white people being under. <laughs> what are you trying to say, bro? Like white people are less of yeah, a global it's, it's population, or? Yeah, I mean. Yeah, so people don't think about that. I mean, like I said, I don't think I, I personally couldn't care less essentially yeah, yeah, about demographic yeah. shift, but there certainly would be people who'd be terrified about things like that. And the uh -huh. whole idea of like white genocide is super Nazi-ish. Like it's mm. it's really like mm. such a ugh, like such a fringe concept for alt writers. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm not I'm not going to use. I I just wanted to mention that because that's what it sounds like I'm saying. I'm not mm. saying that, right? Like that's you're saying I like I don't like Nazi. You're saying it might radicalize a lot of people into becoming Nazis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Exactly. Uh -huh. I mean, because like I said, it really, the best summary after that is overpopulation is a global, popula global problem that can only mm -hmm. be regionally enforced. Mm -hmm. that, that's all I have to say about that. It, it, it couldn't happen unless there's like some new world order. And I don't know what the hell <laughs> kind of global events would have to happen in order to make that a thing in our current political climate. Mm-hmm. Um... I think that's especially true because I think the UN, like as a political institution, is going to disintegrate over the couple of of you know the next few decades. Um, they've always been super weak or and really unable to do anything except they you know issue strong words. Yeah, like they bomb. Well, that was NATO. Oh, NATO. NATO bombed Serbia. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. wait. NATO is gonna get stronger. For, ah, no, the NATO's weak too. NATO's weak too. But uh, UN, UN did, like, peacekeeping stuff in, uh, like, Africa. Yeah, you're right, right, you're right. That is NATO. That is NATO. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, I think they NATO. did peacekeeping in Somalia and in um, during the Rwandan genocide. They sent some troops over there. Um, also, like, Interpol, I guess. But, um, but like, that's not – I don't think that's ever going to happen because countries are, are – as resources become more and more scarce, countries are, are more incentivized towards competition and not collaboration which means the UN as a diplomatic instrument is no longer remotely useful and, and therefore ineffective, right? Because the UN's I power agree. comes from how useful its existence is to global superpowers. So for the United States, it's useful because it allows them to uh, essentially, um, you know, advocate for what the U.S. deems to be the appropriate um, ideology or, or politics, right? Um, so if the UN has a lot of influence and the US has a lot of influence in the UN, then the US effectively has de facto more influence. If that makes sense. And that's one of the one of the biggest biggest uh, you know arguments against the whole idea of globalism. Mm -hmm. It's like I have I, I generally 
I'm against globalism in the, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I'm, I think my ideas are pretty libertarian. Mm -hmm. I'm against globalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is something I talked a lot about a lot with my friends that, mm -hmm. uh, it's the idea that it wouldn't, the, the problems of certain countries don't apply to others. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's just, it, it's not effective to kind of provide administration in a general sense to every single country just because of how diverse problems are that affect communities around the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that I makes know, sense. That's, that's one thing. But but the, what you said is really the main one is that since America has the largest voice mm -hmm. in NATO, right? Even or the in UN. the UN yeah, or yeah. in whatever global, you know, organizations, they essentially have a stranglehold over smaller countries. Mm -hmm. right? Like I used to be a, like a, a one world government type of guy, but like I don't I don't really see a a situation a scenario in which you know that doesn't immediately just become neo-colonialism i mean it is neo-colonialism yeah That's all it is. <laughs> yeah yeah it's true it's true that's not to say the un hasn't done like good things i'm just saying like i mean not that well, it matters yeah, humanitarian yeah. things right 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 um, but I, I i don't think the un is the only organization capable of humanitarian efforts right right um and I mean, I don't think it even matters that much anyway, because the UN, like I said, isn't is is no longer politically useful, um, because conflict between countries is going to increase, which means cooperation becomes, uh, unfeasible, right? And so, like in this sort of world where the United States is locked into, a, a, what is effectively a new Cold War with China, um, mm -hmm. Like, the UN, at, the UN was, like, look at it this way, like, the UN was most useful to the United States in the time period between the fall of the Soviet Union and the emergence of China as a real, um, uh, foil Welcome to the United there. States. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it just so happens that the UN was also the most power, was, was at its sort of apogee of global power and influence in that period of time. Um. Yeah, no, mm -hmm. that, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I was going to say something to add on to that, but I forgot. So just, I maybe I'll remember it. If you just... Right. So uh, we were talking about space exploration. Uh, we are talking about space exploration. Do mm -hmm. you have anything else to add on to that discussion? I, I think that I brought up the major points that I'd like to talk about. All right, very cool. All right, so, so... I know Harshil also has some things prepared himself, so I, I'm excited to hear them. Yeah, that is uh, very true. But like last time, I feel like before we move on to the next major uh, course in our meal, our podcast meal, um, I want to talk about, we should probably talk about like current global affairs and then move on to what I have to talk about. Yeah. So what do you think? Of, what do you think of uh, the Delta variant? Uh, like I, we kind of discussed this a little before. I am not entirely convinced mm -hmm. that 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 will be able to return safely i think that regardless of what happens whether it's safe or not people aren't willing to lock down a second time mm -hmm. even if it's super super dangerous there's mm -hmm. not going to be a second lockdown so mm -hmm. people are just gonna kind of i don't know people are just gonna keep on dying from it and right. it'll become normal um so here in michigan uh in our very blue ingham county um the masking rate yep, is right. like 50 percent right i see like 50 per i go outside like half people have masks on um you know, like I, you know, I, I'm I'm wearing I'm usually wearing masks in like public places. So you know, like in in a in a grocery store, like half the people have masks on, um, mm -hmm. which to me is even still kind of like astonishing because of how 
uh, democratic and, and liberal are specific constituency liens. And, um, yeah, but uh, over the weekend, I went to Cincinnati in Ohio, which was like a plus seven uh, red state this election, I think, plus seven, plus eight, something like that. I mean, it's no longer really a swing state. It's more of a, of a Republican stronghold. I think Republicans won Ohio by the larger margin of victory than they won in Texas. Um, it's kind of crazy to think about. And in Ohio, no one wears masks. I mean, they're, they're no longer... Uh, you know, part of the, you know, daily uh, repertoire of accessories that people wear when they leave the home. Um, I mean, the thing with masks is how people tie their identities into wearing them or not wearing them. Right. And like, I think people like become a statement at the point. Right. Right. They're very political in nature. And I think people who are extremely pro mask are just as annoying as people who are extremely anti mask. Like the people who argue mm -hmm. that, you know, you can't, you can't unmask when you're with, you know, personal and close friends um, uh, who are all vaccinated. A lot of people say, oh, you still got to mask up. It's like, really? like, Or you can't go to yeah. restaurants and eat at restaurants because you have to take your mask off when you're at a restaurant. I mean, like, I don't know, bro. I'm sorry. Like, I'll wear my mask. Um, it's just that in certain contexts, I just don't think, especially when most people are vaccinated, I, I don't really know if they're um, still useful or, or needed at that point. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I I saw this thing on, I mean, an absolute awful garbage website, Reddit. Mm -hmm. I, I hate it. I, 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 hate I, it. Oh, I browsed Reddit. Reddit. I'm I'm ashamed to admit it. Mm -hmm. oh, um, so but so there's one meme where it's like, oh, people are never gonna truly recover from COVID. They're just gonna normalize dying from it, and I mm -hmm. I think that that's that's pretty true. You think like COVID's said, gonna I, become I, seasonal? I, I read an article about I, how it I don't might. know about seasonal. I, at this point, I've kind of started to think about the fact that maybe we're never going to return to, you know, normal per normal, se. Normal, I mean, this yeah, is yeah. kind of just a change in our lives that we're mm. all going to have to adapt to. Yeah, I think, you know, COVID is going to be a news fixture, uh, like a fixture in, in the news and, you know, in life um, well until, like, we're both in college. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's I, tough. I, I, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. If I mean, because mm -hmm. this is really the first time in a long, long right. time that you know humans have ever had to deal mm. with something like this, and it's the first time in a modern context something's mm. happened at yeah. this scale. So I'm not sure. If, right. And I, I'm not optimistic that we're going to return soon. That's that's all I have to say about that. Right, right. And you know, people compare COVID to you know like. Um, you know, the Spanish flu or like the Black Death, and like those aren't really accurate analogies because COVID's far less deadly. Even even though we have like, even if we didn't have all our modern technology, COVID still would have killed, killed wouldn't have killed, would COVID would still not um kill as many people as you know the Spanish flu or the Black Plague. Um, you know, I think in a way COVID is more analogous to like leprosy in that like it slowly drains a society of its energy and its patience and its economic health. I mean, health. leprosy is extremely, uh, extremely well, deadly to people who have it, though. No, but it's like a slow burn, you know what I mean? Like, it takes you, like, decades to die of leprosy. Like, you get leprosy, and then you're just, like, stuck. Um, well, not really anymore, because, you know, we have, like, medication to deal with it, but... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's like, that's what really... I see COVID being, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, okay, this is... I just have to say this, like, I cannot let the moment pass without saying this, but since you mentioned leprosy, if you won't mind just taking, like, 10 seconds to hear my joke. Uh, Go ahead. How did the how did the leper hockey game end? How did it end? 
there was a face off in the corner. Fuck you. I was just continue anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I I couldn't let the moment pass anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. That's, that's just like basically what I see COVID becoming. Um. Uh, I think you know the thing about COVID is it doesn't mutate as as much as influenza. Um. But it, it still mutates a lot uh, compared to other you know pathogens. Um. And so at a certain point, like the you know, I, I you know I honestly see the vaccine like losing a lot of its efficacy over the next three to five years. I mean, I definitely do. I, yeah. I absolutely do. Mm -hmm. And at that point, like I don't I even mean, know. It could what happen happens. even more recently than that. Right, right. It's kind of crazy to you know be thinking as far ahead as five years. Right. But... No one, no one knows how the thing is going to mutate because you're basically playing Russian roulette every time there's a transmission. And like, yeah, there's only one yeah. bullet in a million. Um, you know, what what are those holes in a in a revolver called? We put the bullets? like a chamber. Yeah, there's like right. a, there's like a million chambers in only one bullet. But when there are a million transmissions, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, that yeah. is true. Uh -huh. That is true. It ought to happen sooner or later. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so I guess we move yeah, on, on to the, to the next say. section. Was, you have anything else to say, or? No, I th I mean, we had kind of a similar conversation to this in the last one, but uh, right. you know, I, I I'm pretty happy. I said all I had to say. So. Very cool. And I got the joke. Very cool. So I I want to talk about the name of the podcast. I called it Shrigma Mail Hours because Shrigma Mail was the meme of the week at the time, and it's still pretty funny. Um, but I realized funny. that it also has um sort of a a useful uh application. I guess because we can essentially do a biography on various Shrigma males, right? So it's like Shrigma male hours. We talk about yep. Shrigma males. And what is a Shrigma male is the question. And the answer is, I don't know. Um, but According to the meme, it's just someone who, who his entire existence revolves around eating mushrooms. Yeah, yeah, that's the meme. But I think a Shrigma male goes beyond that. I think it goes beyond description. Metaphorical mushrooms, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so the, you know, I was thinking of like Shrigma males we could talk about on the podcast. And I think a good one might be J.R. Smith, the basketball player. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, I, I tell me about him cause I don't really follow. I mean, we'll talk about him on a later episode cause I don't want to, his, his career is too long and too incredible and too Shrigma <laughs> to describe in, in one podcast. Yeah. Um, we could destroy the patriarchy, um, we'd break the patriarchy, and then talk about a Shrigma female, like I don't know, like Marine Le Pen, I guess. She, she's pretty Shrigma. I mean, I don't really know. We've got an idea for a really, really good Shrigma that we could talk about. Uh-huh. Who, 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 yeah, who are you thinking of? Do you want me to start mine first? Or do you want to... Uh, you want to save yours for a different podcast? Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, can, we can do that. All right. But today, I wanted to talk about a guy who I who who might be like the most shrigma male of all time. Uh, the the shrigma the smot snat shrigma male of all time. Yeah, the smoat. I don't so know. Smoat. 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 Yeah. yeah. Talking about my boy, my homie, uh, Muammar al Gaddafi, uh, <laughs> president of Libya for what like a good 60 years half a century yeah. uh the ultimate shrigma male got his ass kicked uh by the u.s and nato 
and had a knife stuck up his ass, actually, and was deposed. I watched the video of when he got captured, when he got, like, pulled out of the pipe he was hiding in. Yeah. Oh, I mean, don't if you, you know, are afraid of, like, a little a little PTSD or whatever. If you're unsensitized, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot of shouting. Uh-huh. Now, the video is insane, though. Like, <laughs> it is mean? insane. I mean, it's legit, like, hundreds and hundreds of just mm -hmm. Libyan people screaming. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it must be cathartic for them. I mean, they finally got their hands on him. Mm-hmm. So I think what it's makes like right, right. So I think what makes Gaddafi Shrigma is that for the longest time I could not wrap my head around him. You know what I mean? Like with any other figure or leader in history, there's like a narrative that you can ascribe to them. Like to you know Vladimir Lenin, it's you know uh, a popular revolution, the establishment of the world's first socialist state. George Washington, the establishment of the world's first you know, Republican democracy. There's like a narrative that goes along with them. There's like a sort of purpose to their to their place in history. There's a, um, you know, they have like a real historical identity. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 What's interesting about Gaddafi is he doesn't. I mean, he, he cannot come up with a narrative to describe the trajectory and uh, of Gaddafi's career of his, uh, you know, the direction of his, of his country, Libya, um, he, you can't, you know, people use these terms like good or evil to describe historical figures, you know, there's a good guy, there's a bad guy, like, Gaddafi is so extraordinarily complex and self-contradictory that not only is he not good or evil, he's evil, he's also not not good or evil, I don't know if that makes any sense, he just defies our human conception definition. of like morality he's just Gaddafi you know what I mean yeah no that makes sense yeah um and so if you want to understand Gaddafi you have to understand baby Gaddafi right when he was just a lad in the uh Libyan military um I think deep my goodness right in like the 50s uh Italy was basically like a puppet uh, sorry Libya was basically a puppet colony of Li of, of Italy right because um, Italy had actually colonized Libya like in the early 20th century um, after they lost in World War II it, Libya gained sort of some semblance of um, autonomy but Libya basically ran sorry Italy basically ran the country through proxy um, through uh, a guy named King Idris um, and so you know Gadd you know Gaddafi's not happy with that he's like yo what's up dog I want I want Libya to be autonomous I want you know nationalism we and spoke shit like you know? too. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. He pretty base, not gonna lie. And you know, being you know a young military cadet um, in the Arab world, he's obviously going to be inspired um, and heavily influenced by Nasser. Um, and at this period of time, uh, Egypt had overthrown its monarchy, um, which was essentially also a West proxy, um, and headed by Nasser, uh, who had assumed. Um, presidential authority following the revolution and he writes this book called philosophy of the revolution it essentially outlines how to perform a coup um within a government you know by the military Gaddafi reads this book he's inspired um and he that's what he does he mounts a revolution against the existing Libyan government uh he's the head of the uh something called the RCC which was the Revolutionary Committee something. I forgot the entire acronym. Uh, 
And yeah, he's he's sitting up there on his throne. Not really throne, but he, you know, he's vibing. It's a new dictator. Oh, this is, this is like right after the Suez Crisis. Uh, around that sort of time period. I mean, the okay. chronology is my my chrono my like chronology of events is kind of fucked because I'm, I'm yeah. Just, I was like, thinking about like Arab Spring and how that. Well, that was like way well, later. That was in like two thousand. I was gonna say. I was yeah, gonna yeah. say. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and you need to understand his ideology at the time and there is sort of like two main uh foundational three main foundational pillars actually so the first is socialism uh, Gaddafi was heavily influenced by you know various socialist thinkers uh countries but he's an anti-communist um so he doesn't believe in the the dissolution of the state and of power uh he thinks that the state is a necessary feature of of you know of a, of a potentially socialist society because um, the vast what would differentiate socialist socialists and communists is that communists view socialism as a transition to communism, which is basically where there's no government or currency or money, and people just work for each other. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the second second pillar of his uh, political ideology is Sharia law. He's like a fanatic. Uh, Sharia enthusiasts and throughout his career uh, we'll discuss he institutes various uh, pro-Sharia mandates you know Sharia law um, and the third pillar is pan-Arabism um, he believes in a, a collective uh, sort of he believes in, in one giant Arab nation he thinks all the Arab countries was, should unite and, and be one big on collective that. yeah because with the uh suez crisis and mm -hmm. you know it seems like Gaddafi was really really motivated by the idea of libyan nationalism mm -hmm. is that's interesting because it sounds like it's just a response to colonialism you know at around that time with right. arab states and like a wave of nationalism nationalism amongst the states right but that's another interesting point to bring up is the idea of pan-arabism there's still a sense of collectiveness mm -hmm. and pan-arabism is by the common struggles i mean right i right. mean it's exactly like you were saying he was inspired by nasser mm-hmm and I think one of the main reasons, um, you know, pan Arabism was extremely unsuccessful. I mean, well, you had the United Arab Republic for like a, a year, a couple of years between Egypt and Syria, and then that dissolved. Um, you know, I, I think the reason pan Arabism is sort of a failed ideology is because it's defined in relative to like what you said to colonialism, and and more specifically um, in relative in relation to to Zionism, right? So Arab countries, All they external see external pressures are right. brutal for things like that, right? But I think the the point of Zionism is is pretty interesting because you know a lot of Arab countries in this period of time they you know they've thrown off their colonial shackles, um, you know regained some measure of autonomy, and then all of a sudden you know there's this piece of land where a bunch of European countries are you know flooding in, uh, committing genocide against native Arabs who live in that region, uh, displacing them and sending a bunch of refugees across the Arab world. And so there's like this feeling of um, there's like a, a a feeling of being threatened among Arab countries that sort of bonds them together in a way and forges um, pan Arabism as an ideology. There's but, little to bring them together in the absence of things like that. Right, and like as you know, over time, as as Israel normalizes relations with other Arab countries and and sort of establishes mm -hmm. itself as like a country in the Middle East, um, pan Arabism like you know, the dissolves like pretty quickly. Um it, it sort of tracks perfectly, you know, the, the normalization of, of, you know, Egyptian and Israeli relations with uh the Camp David Accords, um, was like the nail in the coffin for Pan Arabism because now there's no longer 
a, a, a security concern, a feeling of being threatened or, or being displaced. Um, of course, that's for Arab countries. Like, for Arabs actually live in, you know, Israel and live in Palestine. Like, the situation's, you know, still that of an occupation, but... Um, that's a smaller scale, though. It's not a national scale. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's that's that. So we move on to uh, his first sort of economic... Uh, planning uh, or economic policies, you know, he, he starts to restructure the uh, Libyan economy and he moves in a very state capitalist direction. I think what differentiates state capitalism and socialism is that, you know, in both, you know, societies, the uh, means of production are, are controlled and operated by the state. But in a state capitalist system, they're operated for a profit, right? So like if there's a state capitalist country, it, you know, mobilizes its forces of production to produce cotton and then sells them on a, on a you know on a, like a global market um in a socialist country um they would you know use their production their their um means they would use their forces of production to produce cotton and then you know distribute them back to their own people if that makes sense no, that makes sense yeah. yeah and so a lot of socialist countries you know begin as state capitalist countries and eventually even transition into state capitalist countries you know china was a socialist country for like a good like 50 years and then now it's state capitalist um most you know the soviet union was state capitalist for most of its existence um generally because the work of building socialism requires like a lot of funding and you have to get that funding from somewhere and the market is a place to get that um yeah yeah no that, that makes sense right so state capitalism is often seen as the transition between um a capitalist society and a socialist society if that makes any sense Mm -hmm. um so yeah libya becomes state capitalist um he, or, or at least attempts to become state capitalist um gaddafi has a bunch of other economic policies in this period of time some of which are successful and some of which are not successful um, one of the most successful things he does is he nationalizes the banks um in in libya uh which essentially gives libya a ton of new revenue and and you know, sort of jump starts their new economy post-colonial economy um and one failure he has is he attempts something called the green revolution he sort of attempted to nationalize the uh, agricultural apparatus of libya and that fails horribly um ag agricultural production went down uh pretty considerably and you know they uh, gaddafi actually had to import more food which was what he tried not to do you know he, he wanted to increase agricultural production to make Libya less dependent on other countries for food, but it ended up being counterproductive. Um, and sort of like, you know, if we look at these early economic policies, we sort of see the trajectory of the rest of, of uh, Gaddafi's political career. I mean, it's almost like an overture and a symphony, right? Um, you know, you see some success, you see some failure, but what you ultimately see is success and failure existing simultaneously feeding off of one another and and existing and coming from the same place if that makes any sense no that does make sense that's interesting to think about right so i want to move on to his institution of sharia law um you know normally when people think about socialism they think of it being very atheistic in nature right like that's what you know if you go on fox news um when people generally complain about socialism on the right they don't actually talk about socialism it's as a an social economic... it, it, right they see it as issue. right they see it being as like a threat to you know christianity or whatever you know that makes sense it's an identity thing yeah right and like socialists you know a lot a lot of socialist countries throughout history have been um 
atheist or extremely atheist atheistic in nature right the uh the soviet union uh probably my biggest criticism of the soviet union was its sort of consistent persecution of of religious and and by extension ethnic minorities um and it was the same thing in china right china also had uh a lot of pretty brutal uh measures of of religious repression which i think is probably not good you know what i mean no that's not mm-hmm. and but Gaddafi was like completely on the other side of the spectrum I mean, he was a religious fanatic uh and he institutes you know pretty draconian sharia law measures uh you know alcohol is now banned uh, women are forced to wear you know the kind of clothing that women can wear in public is uh restricted you know uh divorce becomes more difficult um, and you sort of see a regression into social conservatism brought upon by uh, Gaddafi's policies, if that makes any sense. That's um, interesting. I, I've, I've noticed that I've been kind of a talking head here, so if you want to like add anything. No, no, no. This is, no, I, I'm, I'm interested. I mean, I'm learning, mm-hmm. as probably uh-huh. our viewers are, or listeners, why do I say viewers? Yeah. Uh, I'm learning. That's good. It's good to learn. We're hearing things under new contexts, more like. I didn't know things <laughs> about, like, the failure of collectivization of agriculture or mm-hmm. well i mean collectivized agriculture like has been successful in the past like you know in the soviet union i mean in libya i mean specifically in right, libya right 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 i didn't know that i didn't know that Gaddafi tried that mm-hmm. um so i guess we move on to the next sort of uh, stage of Gaddafi's career and this is when he sort of looks to the world looks specifically to the arab world and also to the western world uh so after the six day war uh, there's a something called a federation of of Arab republics. Uh, that's an agreement between, I believe, Egypt, uh, whose uh, leader is now Anwar Sadat. Nasser has passed away. Um, Gaddafi and and the ruler of Syria at the time might have been Assad. I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, Assad's been present for a long time. Let me. See. Well, I'm talking about Hafez al-Assad, uh, Bashar's dad. Uh, So so what 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 time period is this right now? What are we when are we talking? I think we're in the 60s. Um okay, so this is way or okay. Yeah, okay, yeah, I'm talking mind. about this I'm talking early. about 60s or 70s. I'm talking about Hafez, not Bashar. Okay, um, I was thinking of Libya in its prime. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So uh Sadat starts backing out of the agreement because Gaddafi is, you know, he he perceives Gaddafi as too radical, as too far left, and that infuriates, you know, Gaddafi. And basically after this time period, we see uh open hostility between Libya and Egypt, um, which is interesting because they were best buds during Nasser, but sort of Sadat and, and Gaddafi sort of simultaneously uh, drive a wedge into their relationship and they become rivals more than they become uh, collaborators. And, and, and as you can imagine, um, that relationship breaks down even further after Camp David and you know Egypt recognizes Israel and normalizes relationships with them. Um, yeah, that would. Mm. Seems like a lot of Gaddafi's like ideologies in his earlier life, though, were created essentially by things like the Suez Crisis. So that's interesting that that right there. Mm. And like, yeah, that's like the general theme of failure. I mean, Gaddafi wanted to pursue pan Arabism, and he wanted to pursue socialism. Uh, he those two ideologies are kind of contradictory because obviously yeah, they not really every are. Right, they really are not every Arab country is going to be socialist and and socialism is kind of anti nationalism in a way right, um, yeah, <laughs> I just swallowed water went down the wrong pipe oh that's fine uh, are you choking are you choking on water yeah, a little bit uh, I'm gonna anyway continue yeah yeah 
um, in like seventh grade, I was talking to a friend. Um, I was like, it's impossible to choke on water. I take a, I take like a sip of water and I start choking on it. Um, so, you know, <laughs> yeah, that was a formative choke. experience for me. Uh, anyway, uh, on Gaddafi, uh, sort of Sadat, the relation, like that, that sort of ties into this general theme of, of failure, right? Cause he doesn't understand the own contradictions within his ideology and that mm -hmm. leads to the failure of his ideology. And, the whole time he's still just as zealous about them if that makes sense he only increases in oh, his yeah, zealousy for both pan-arabism and um socialism despite you know relevant indications that those two ideologies cannot simultaneously coexist um so yeah that's that's egypt uh gaddafi now we're in we're like in the 70s and 80s now um the premier um uh Palestinian Liberation Organization in uh, Palestine at this point had been uh, Fatah, right, uh, under Arafat. But Gaddafi becomes frustrated because Arafat starts moving towards um, peaceful and and diplomatic negotiations. No, yeah, yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so as Arafat moves in a in a uh, in a less militant direction, uh, Gaddafi becomes frustrated and starts supporting. Uh, Marxist Leninist groups in Palestine instead. Uh, but then here, here we have like another contradiction, right? Because Gaddafi hated Marxism, he hated communism, uh, and he actually persecuted and uh, suppressed uh, Marxist organization, Marxist Leninist organization in his own country. So you know you're, you're antagonistic to Marxist or Marxist in your country, but then you're supporting Marxists internationally, right? It's like that. That's that's hmm. like. A classic shrigma contradiction, if you know what I mean. Shrigma contradiction. Shrigma. That's, that's what that is. Yeah, that's what makes him a shrigma male. You know what I mean? He he doesn't understand, or or he maybe he understands, but he's unwilling to resolve contradictions in his own politics. Um, which you know, it's like it, it's it's bizarre in a way, and that's like I think that's one reason I was never able to wrap my head around him is because he's such a confusing figure. It's hard to like, you know. Uh, ascribe one archetype or or personality to him just because of how diverse and, and competing his own interests are. Um, really interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll be a little more brief. I think I've, I've been rambling for like a good 20 minutes here. No, I mean, uh, I'm fine with it. I don't know about our <laughs> listeners, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm learning a lot. Mm -hmm. So now we're in, we're like in the 70s and 80s again, and we go back to domestic policy, uh, Gaddafi institutes something called Jamahiriya, which roughly translates to popular revolution in, in Arabic. He replaced every single law in the country uh, and enacts basically a cultural revolution um, and establishes a surveillance state in the country of, of Libya, right? He essentially, like you were talking, we talked about like, you know, year zero and in Cambodia earlier. Mm -hmm. This is Gaddafi's version of year zero. He, he you know, abolishes the RCC establishes essentially near dictatorial control of the politics of Libya um, while, you know, abolishing every single, you know, every, every meaningful president precedent that existed before. Uh, and I mean, yeah, like there's, you know, an attempted coup from uh, a mercantile class because it's pretty clear that Gaddafi is moving in a more and more socialist uh, direction that, that fails and that only increases the extent of uh, the security state uh, in Libya. Okay. Wow. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And so, you know, that that's that. You know, I think that's not particularly Shrigma. I mean, like, other countries have had cultural revolutions and uh, year zeros. I mean, I think what's interesting I mean, typically... about... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I mean, it's it, yeah. Typically, it's it's not in the, I mean, the people who it's in the best interest for is is a theoretical class in the future rather mm-hmm. than the people who actually exist there now. So, I mean, that just by default creates a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think what is sort of showing about the popular revolution now that I, I I think about it is that he uses it to sort of create a cult of personality, which you know one might think that a young Gaddafi would have dissented uh, like. Uh, detested, right? Um, you know, I mean, it's pretty clear that Gaddafi is opposed to, you know, uh, based on his act- anti-colonial actions and, and uh, sort of activity in his earlier career, uh, opposed to authority, basically, or, or the venerance of authority. But that's the sort of relationship he creates with his own country during the popular revolution, if that makes sense. I'm gonna say, he's definitely an icon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, we'll go back to foreign relations. I, if anyone, if anyone's wondering, I'm reading. I have like a bunch of index cards with like a bunch of notes on them. Um, that's why this is so disorganized. I'm just like looking through these notes. You're just uh, more organized. I would have. Done. <laughs> I wouldn't have written anything. I just, I just wing it. So that's, you're, that's, you're maybe I need to wing it more. <laughs> this maybe this would be. Oh no, no I, I'm not saying it like it's a bad thing. <laughs> I mean, it's really good, man. You got to give right. yourself some credit. All right, all right. Uh, so moving back to foreign relations, we sort of see Gaddafi's last fling at pan-Arabism. Spoiler alert, he moves towards pan-Africanism, pan-Africanism later in his career. Um, but he tries to form a, a, a union with Tunisia. If you don't know, Tunisia is right next to Libya. So there's like Libya, Tunisia, and then Egypt on the right, and Tunisia on the left. Um, and the the leader of Tunisia actually agrees. He's like super enthusiastic. But then Tunisia actually undergoes a revolution from its own people who are like, we're not, we're not like, we're not fucking with this dude. We got to get out. Um, and so after, you know, the pro-Libyan government collapses in Tunisia, the, the new government's like, nah, we're not, we're not doing the union. Um, so that's basically the nail in the coffin for pan-Arabism as, pan-Arabism as like a political ideology. Uh, because, yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's comprehensively failed. And, and Gaddafi acknowledges that he doesn't, you know, openly, um, you know, he doesn't openly become cynical about pan-Arabism until, you know, later in his career, but I think this is something he understands at this point. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the U.S., the, the Libya starts becoming more and more antagonistic of, of the U.S. and of, uh, of, of NATO and the Western, of the West during this period of time. Uh, which makes sense. Gaddafi is both an anti-capitalist and anti-Western, right? Given that he's, you know, an anti-colonialist. Uh, he... Tr- uh, uh, what am I saying? I was trying to articulate something. Oh, right. Uh, Gaddafi, like, continually tries to join the Warsaw Pact, uh, but then the Soviet Union's like, we're not fucking with you. You're too unpredictable. And that, that was, made, like, the, sh- the Soviets acknowledge that Gaddafi is Shrigma, right? They, they understand the contradictions in his own <laughs> they, ideology. Yeah, they, they, and they're like, it. yeah, you're not reliable. Like, you're not a reliable ally. We can't we can't associate with you. So Gaddafi's mm-hmm. like, oh, shucks. I, I guess I just have to oppose the U.S. on my own then. Uh, and he starts funding various um, groups uh, that the U.S. and NATO would consider uh, adversarial, I guess. So he starts supporting Remember- the... Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. 
Yeah, I remember, I mean, there was a lot of support from the IRA and, like, dissident Irish Republican groups. That's from, what I was like, going to talk about, yeah. Like, he, he, yeah, they received a lot of aid. Right, he, he supports the IRA uh, pretty ex zealously, um, which, you know, is, once again, kind of kind of odd because the IRA is pretty openly, like, Catholic. I mean, and he's a fanatical. But it's not necessarily about, I mean, it's not necessarily about the... It's not like a religious organization, but... It's just a statement against, I right. Know. Right. I feel like it's still a reaction against colonialism to some extent. Oh, the IRA is definitely an anti-colonialist group, like, for sure. I mean, I'm talking about Libya. Oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. The reason why they support the IRA. Obviously, the IRA It's is, an extension yeah. of, of, you know, his anti-colonialist ideology. And that's sort of, like, the one consistent um, characteristic of his, of his uh, politics is that he's consistently an anti-colonialist, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, he supports anti-apartheid groups, uh, especially militant anti-apartheid groups in South Africa, and that earns him the friendship of Mandela, right? Um, so, you know, in the West, or I guess nowadays in the West, we sort of think of Mandela as this, um, we have like a character of Mandela, like we think of him only through the lens of his, you know, peaceful activity and his, uh, I don't know, the, the fact that he was... I feel like people don't, don't actually know. know that much about him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what am I trying to articulate? Generally here? here in the United States. Yeah, like we have a character of Mandela that he was like only peaceful. He was well. He was reserved. He was you know cooperative with the apartheid government. But like he was in fact super militant. And what what created the conditions for the democratic end of the apartheid government was uh, Mandela's and and other people like him. Uh, their their militant organizing throughout most of the seventies and eighties. And so Mandela actually becomes like a lifelong friend of Gaddafi. And they're, 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 bu they're best buds at this point. And so Gaddafi, he sort of sees his friendship with Mandela. And then he looks at his hostility with the Arab world. And he's like, maybe pan-Arabism isn't the best ideology. Maybe I need, I need to go somewhere else. And then you sort of see the, uh, the seedlings of pan-Africanism, which, which is like a political uh, project that Gaddafi essentially revives in, in, the, 20th, in, the, in the 21st century. But we're not there yet. Uh, he he also supports the Black Panthers, which is super interesting. I mean, that, that that's what makes him Trigmas because you know the Black Panthers are super based, probably the most based organization I know. Uh, and I mean, I mean, I mean, it's cool. I mean, hats off to Gaddafi. I like the Black Panthers, and I like that he supports them. I mean, yeah, that's I interesting. I I had no idea about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what he's really doing is trying to piss off the United States. He's like, you know, fuck you. I'm supporting the Black Panthers. I don't want your, I don't want your U.S. influence in my country. Uh, and because of all of this activity, um, he ends up on the United States uh, list of of state sponsors of terrorism uh, under the Reagan administration. Uh, and so Reagan sort of uh, authorizes a bunch of bombings of Libya, uh, during which you know. Gaddafi himself sort of ends up unscathed, um, but you know there there are like plenty of civilian deaths that are sort of squarely um, on Reagan and, and and on his defense and and State Departments. I mean, like there's not much more else to say about that. I mean, it's, it's pretty tip, you know, pretty uh, characteristic of the Reagan administration to you know support uh, various abuses. Pretty heavy-handed yeah. in international conflicts. Is what you're trying to say? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't. Want to I'm, I'm trying to call Reagan a war criminal. If that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, well, no. You, you, it sounded like you knew exactly what you wanted to say. 
yeah uh so that's that he um uh, so you know that now like the u.s and and gaddafi are pretty openly uh international opponents and that sort of dynamic lasts uh up until the fall of the soviet union um and now because this great foil of the united states has collapsed gaddafi is now more isolated in his opposition and so what does he do he sort of acknowledges that his relationship with the united states is no longer feasible and he, and he really becomes a western ally right so he starts supporting uh sorry he, he aids like you know the u.s's effort to like after 9-11 like he aids the u.s in afghanistan and in iraq uh he essentially merges his security uh department with the uh cia to essentially stop um potential terrorist incidents and he, and he basically become he tries to become like a best tries to become best friends with the United States. Mm. And one very critical and important element of that is that he actually gives up his nuclear program. Like Gaddafi had developed um, the foundations of what well, had a nuclear program. They did. And he gives, he gives up his nukes. It's like, I don't want these nukes. You can have them. I want to be your best friend now. Wow. Which does not bode well for Gaddafi because later on he gets fucked by the U S and part one of the reasons he gets fucked is because he didn't have nukes, uh, which is kind of sad. But, you know, Gaddafi. I mean, kind of sad for Gaddafi. Very sad for Gaddafi. Uh, and in this time, he becomes a committed, committed pan-Africanist, right? Uh, Pan-Africanism, as an ideology, began during the anti-colonial era, as, like, all of these new African countries started getting their independence. Um, basically... What was I say? Yeah, yeah, but it, it died over time as you know, governments moved in a more radical, uh, like 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 in Uganda, for instance, the uh, the first president was Abote, who was more, uh, who was a populist essentially. He was a socialist. He was uh, he was uh, invested in democracy, but he was replaced by Idi Amin, who was basically a fascist. If that makes sense. Yeah, Idi Amin. Mm-hmm. We could. We could do an entire, entire podcast on Idi Amin. Him. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then Gaddafi actually revives the ideology. He he founds the um, African Union. Uh, he you know makes all these diplomatic efforts to get countries involved and get countries sort of organized into a, a pan African cause. Um, and he officially abandons pan abandons uh, pan Arabism. So I mean, yeah, that's sort of the evolution of his sort of political trajectory. He invests way too long into pan Arabism. And then he finally switches over to Pan-Africanism. And so finally, we see the final, the the swan song of Gaddafi's career. He sort of regains some of his international reputation. But alas, Libya falls into civil war. And in 2011, during the Arab Spring, uh, the U.S. supports the the rebel factions over over Gaddafi. Uh, And they, you know, NATO invades Libya. Uh, Gaddafi ends up being captured and gets a knife stuck up his ass, uh, and that, that's, that's the video that. we were talking about earlier. Yeah, that's full that. circle. Full circle. We come back full circle. That's that. That's Gaddafi's career. Um, so I mean, just general Herbie thoughts. Do you have general thoughts? I don't know. It was. Just, it, I just. I, I learned a lot, man. Like mm. a lot of the stuff he said. I. Just, I mean, stuff I'm hearing for the first time. That's super, super interesting. Mm-hmm. And like yeah, that that that's what makes Gaddafi a, a super interesting character because the American context for Gaddafi is 
one um early Gaddafi and his anti-colonialism that's like one way Americans know about him and the second context and, and the more common context is his uh is, is the U.S. invasion of Libya and his um you know his, his fall from power and the narrative that the news sort of ascribed to him at the time was that he was a, was a dictator right like oh look at this dictator the U.S. is toppled like the fall of Gaddafi was a way for the U.S. to sort of gain some sort of confidence after the Iraq war had, had thoroughly failed. It's like, okay, we're still mm-hmm. capable of doing things that are um, politically, you know, beneficial and whatnot. Um, True. On a global scale. Uh, but, you know, Gaddafi as like a figure is more complex than his role within the, the international order created by the United States. He's sort of his own guy and he's like, thoroughly and, and completely unique um not to say he was like a good person or whatever like i mean fucking did a lot of terrible shit i mean uh but i mean art to find him as anything yeah you can't he's, he's just he's trigma that's all he is he's trigma he's not like he's a good trigma you can yeah. say he's a trigma I, I keep emphasizing that point because i still can't wrap my head around him i mean there's just something that like there is an intangible quality to him if that makes any sense those are the meta. Those are the metaphorical mushrooms I was talking about earlier. Yeah, the intangible metaphorical mushrooms that make someone trigma. Yes. So Gaddafi's been eating. He's been eating those shrooms. He's been eating. He's mm-hmm. been eating. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Gaddafi did drugs. He might have. Who knows? He probably smoked, right? I know. Back then, everyone smoked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's crazy the, like the change, in view that people have towards certain drugs. Like back, in World War II, a lot of people did meth. Yeah, yeah. They just treat it like medication. Like Hitler. Hitler did was... meth. Hitler did meth, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But now, like, we associate... Like, no one does meth anymore. It's declining in popularity. I mean... No, people... I mean, it's a cheap drug. There's still people in, like, really poor communities who do meth, even here in America. I but mean, it's, it's considered trashy, right? Like, Yeah, it's definitely considered trashy. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Is, that is the one thing it is considered, yes. Trashy. Uh, So that's, that's Gaddafi and his... And and his his shrigmanus, which I have, uh, you know, awkwardly stumbled through, uh, attempting no, to describe. You, you did a good job, I think. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I oh, mean, it and finally, really, I, really interesting to listen to. I have I have uh, one final quote from Nasser. Uh, I didn't maybe I didn't mention this before, but Gaddafi and Nasser met uh, early on in both of their careers. I mean, it was a couple years before um, Nasser died, and it was when. Gaddafi was just starting his uh, leadership of Libya um, and so after the meeting uh, you know there's like a, a press they're like these reporters they come up to the Nasser and they're like sir what did you think of Gaddafi and he responds by saying he's a nice boy but terribly naive which I think is a very apt description of Muammar al-Gaddafi think so yep I think that's yeah, I mean, I, that, that, that's 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 a really good quote. That's really apt. Uh huh. I gotta use that quote more. Like when I meet someone, it's like, "Oh, you're a nice boy, but you're terribly naive." Yeah, tell it to their face. The second you meet yeah, them. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you have anything else to talk about? Anything else that would be interesting? Not really. I mean, it's been like over an hour, so it's been an hour and fifteen minutes. About an hour and fifteen. Let me actually check. I don't, I don't yeah, an hour, an hour and ten minutes. We'll yeah. Cuts. Yeah, unless you want to make cuts, but yeah. And I don't think I'm going to make any cuts to last, this episode. Um, if anyone doesn't know, like, I cut a huge section out of last podcast. Yeah, we, we, uh, yeah, there, last week's we were last, talking about, like, podcast, yeah. we were talking for, like, an extra hour. I told some of my friends this. I don't, I mean, you can cut this if you want, but we were talking mm-hmm. about, like, Reddit, like, 
cringe subreddits. Not really cringe, <laughs> but like stuff like r slash waifuism. waifuism. And we're talking about the kind of people who pay for OnlyFans for like a long time, and then we decided to cut that. We talked about that one like incel shooter. What, what was his name? Elliot Rogers. Elliot we Rogers. Too, we I talked about him about. forever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll talk about him. Um, yeah, maybe we can revisit those topics. I think I think there are interesting points to make about those things. Especially Elliot Rogers, I mean. Especially Elliot Rogers. Talk right? about a shrigma male. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, oh, he's, he's, about a... he's more simplistic than someone like Gaddafi. I don't think he's that much of a shrigma male. I mean, I think I, I think he's a little bit of a beta. Yeah, he's he's pretty easy to understand. Um, well, of course he was a beta. I mean, beta he was an incel. So I mean, like yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, uh, that's that's today's podcast. Hope you enjoyed. Uh, yeah, sorry, listen to the last month, but. Yeah, if you listen to the the first episode, thank you so much. If you listen to this one, once again, thank you. Uh, I don't know yeah. anymore. I don't know how often we're gonna make these, especially because school's starting. Um, yeah, shout out to all my friends who who talked to me after. Appreciate it. Yeah. Much and, and those who didn't, those uh, who just listened, thank you all so much. All right. I mean, we appreciate you guys. All right. Bye. See ya.